0: Welcome to another edition of the Law of Code podcast. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. Hello, everyone. Really excited to share this episode with you today. We'll be covering the history of securities regulation from the Buttonwood Agreement of 1792, all the way to the current discussion around crypto today. And to help do that is my guest, Eric Hess. Eric is founder and managing counsel at Hess Legal Counsel, a cybersecurity and consulting company, and hosts the Encrypted Economy Podcast. Eric has over 20 years of experience acting as senior in-house counsel, general counsel, or senior management for exchanges, broker-dealers, and financial services technology providers. In this episode, we'll be exploring his recent paper, Bridging Policy and Practice, A Pragmatic Approach to Decentralized Finance, Risk, and Regulation, which is linked in the show notes below, and the overarching theme of the history of securities regulation. Eric, thank you for taking the time out of a economy and all the work that you do to join me for this episode. Thanks so much, Jake. I'm excited to be here. So let's start with the history of securities regulation. I thought your paper did an excellent job of breaking these timelines down and explaining what happened. So I thought we could start all the way back in 1792. What is the Buttonwood Agreement and why is it important?
1: Right. So prior to the Bun and Wood Agreement, I mean, obviously trading goes well deep into the the colonial times in the US, a lot surrounding agricultural products. But then there was increasingly a practice of like the, the issuance of government bonds and the trading of those government bonds. By the colonies, as well as as well as banks, there were a number of stockbrokers that tended to congregate in New York City. Previously, they were in coffee shops or what have you, doing it in in scattered places across the city. And so, they basically agreed that they would be much more effective if they were working together. And basically, the the buttonwood tree was actually was the was a was a trading floor for all practical purposes for this group of twenty four stockbrokers. And merchants. And so they basically endeavored to formalize things a bit more as to like how they would trade. And, and there was concerns about fraud. It wasn't a very formalized, it was more of an ad hoc system. So they endeavored to, to change it up. And so to, to kind of ask the next question, which is, why is the Buttonwood Agreement important or what's the relationship to digital assets? First, it, it really represents the first efforts to organize Trading in the U.S. to establish that formalized system, and you know trust was low prior to that. There was no notion of trustless systems, right? And fraud was a concern. So obviously, some clear familiarity there. And and while we're talking in the context of a of a closed network, the Bunnwood Agreement also starts to trace the beginning of of network effects the the notion that once there's a critical mass of participants reached the system becomes more inherently valuable to each of the participants or each of the nodes in in that network and the buttonwood agreement is actually the establishment of of that network
0: and it's amazing to think back to the point where there could have been only 24 stockbrokers right and and what a good example of people coming together and the whole being more than the sum of its parts and Following the Buttonwood agreement, I think it was about 30 years later, we saw the New York Stock and Exchange Board be created. Could you explain what happened in the interim there and what led to this creation of the NYSE?
1: Well, in short, the Buttonwood uh, agreement was very successful. It drew in more members. The members sought to expand beyond government bonds and bank stocks. They moved inside because, I mean, obviously, like they they did it outside for a bit that that worked until it didn't it got cold right and so they they wanted to do things like annual reports they wanted to they felt that growing in the size and formalizing it would make addressing these frauds or manipulation more manageable they could put some slightly institutionalize it that was a, a, a lot of the reason why they ultimately created the board you know to do things like annual reports and to formalize and to have more structure to it
0: and so this board's created and then there were two big acts that followed and it took about 100 years till we saw other major till we saw any major legislation right because the the board of the nyc that wasn't government backed right? neither would the buttonwood agreement right these were just sort of formalized agreements between members but then in 33 and 34 we had the securities or the securities act and the securities exchange act
1: Right. And in in the interim there were also more localized efforts to regulate commodities and dealings and sales practices, but they were scatter scattershot across the states. And basically between 1817 and 1933, and I was I was really young back then, so the the NYSE and other exchanges popped up. They expanded. Obviously, like all the things that had happened in the 30-year period between the Bunwood Agreement and 1817, All those things continued to grow. There was a huge expansion during that era, if you remember, in in industrialization. The late 19th and 20th centuries saw massive industrialization. And even like the railroad stocks became quite huge during that time with booms and busts, notably. Like you had a massive crash in like there was a panic of 1837, you know, 1873. And obviously the Great Depression that followed, but there were things even before the Great Depression, we always kind of cue in on the Great Depression because it was great and it immediately preceded it. But the fact of the matter is, is that there were like booms and busts and sort of this was an evolving growth into into 1933 and 1934. But like one of the things that the, the 33 and the 34 Act, or at least the 33 Act, there was a lot more speculation as there were more players in the market. There were increasingly, there were practices that erode public confidence in, in the marketplace. And so a, a big thrust of the 33 Act was actually to to protect some of the institutionalized traders from those practices, because they were undercutting not just confidence in 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 the market, but in them specifically, and so this was almost like picking the winners to some extent, but picking the winners with an intent to kind of grow the market or or or, or give a pathway for others to sort of participate in the same way that they did to sort of shape the direction of the securities markets. I mean, obviously, there were some spectacular frauds that occurred in in you know in the lead up to the 33 act frauds of people just constantly issuing paper on on companies that didn't exist, you know, houses of cards, Ponzi schemes. I think that's where Ponzi came up, Charles was Charles Ponzi. There was there was a lot of that leading into it. So we look at FTX, but there were magnitudes of fraud that would even rival from the perspective of that era, FTX. So
0: Curious Eric, when you were going through your research in the time period between 1792 and 1933, were there things you found that you were really surprised by? Or in the alternative, if if there wasn't anything that would fit that category, are there things that came up that you didn't include in your paper that were close but weren't quite significant enough to to make the cut?
1: I mean, I think one of the things that really stuck with me in the era preceding the the 33 act was that there are alternate views of history leading up to that. What surprised me was that there was an element of protectionism that was very focused on the investment bankers and protecting a set of investment bankers from other investment bankers. So it it you know in many ways the 1933 act it was derivatively about investor protection. It was really about preserving the financial system, the the financial industry, the intermediary participants. This is something that the intermediary participants, who were governed by it, wanted, because it 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 basically enshrined them as the heirs going forward to some extent. And so that alternative history kind of surprised me because history is old, right? And like even though I was there, I wasn't really actively in, involved at that point. I was a part of every meeting, right? And so you, you sort of miss that. That context, right? That that the enshrining of the intermediary was actually it wasn't done because necessarily. Oh, we think intermediary regulation is the best, and that's why we're going to do it, right? That's not that's not why it happened. It happened because they were protecting the intermediaries first and investor protection followed from it. Now, we can make a strong case that intermediaries can provide that level of protection to the market because the SEC can't be everywhere, so it focuses on the intermediaries, et cetera, or CFTC or what have you, right? But the one thing to really remember, and I think it's important to always kind of take our, our perspective and, and shatter it once in a while and, and contemplate, like, can we rebuild it? and and in a way that makes more sense not to get so entrenched in our perspective is that intermediary regulation grew out of a desire to protect not the investors but the participants and so that i think is is pretty compelling and there was a it's, good reason for it i'm not saying oh they shouldn't have done that and what were
0: the reasons that came up for why they because, wanted this because protection? there was
1: because there was a crisis of confidence because of of some of the practices that the smaller broker dealers and like that were unregulated, there was a lot of fraud, there was a lot of misrepresentation. It was impacting the, the, the main right. participants as well. And it sort of questioned, you know, it, it really made, it, it, it created this whole impression within the market, you know, that tainted even the more established institutions, but they were also getting negatively impacted from a dollars and cents perspective directly by some of these fronts.
0: And you can draw many parallels to the crypto market, I'm sure, right? The digital asset market today and what we've seen with some actors and, and other actors, may they be onshore or offshore. And I can imagine it is in many actors' best interest to have some form of regulation to the separate themselves from the others who may not be abiding by that. And and I'm sure as you were going through the historic side of this that went through your mind quite often where there's so many parallels between nascent industries throughout history that continue to repeat themselves over time.
1: And I think, you know, the other thing that I can't say that I learned but it really becomes striking as you as you start to go through the history is that the equities market had a long time to evolve into its current regulatory state right it was given a lot of latitude to get things right i mean can you imagine and i'm not going to say any names but can you imagine if some of the members of congress had had been there in its early stages and demanding all this regulation and and like right out the gate how would have how would it have ever succeeded yeah right like it it there were problems people tried to address them you could maybe argue in retrospect couldn't they have done it quick more quickly than you know 150 years or so I don't know I mean but, but that's not really the 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 point the point is is that it was an evolving process and and it did accelerate and maybe some acceleration is warranted but I mean think about how young the digital asset space is really young like like did the Buttonwood tree for the, the time between the Buttonwood tree the but but the Buttonwood agreement and the board we had roughly 25 to 30 years elapsing whatever right we we haven't even got into that in in digital assets, but look at like just how you know the, the types of demands and the things that are being discussed that need to be applied to it day one. So you know certainly the U.S. market had its issues early stage, but but you need to create an incentive structure to build a market. There has to be an incentive structure, and so I'm not defending. I'm not saying hey we should embrace fraud. No, but we should also be cognizant that like it takes time to evolve and and you know, I don't think anybody has it all figured out at this point.
0: Well, imagine if at that time there were anti-bond armies popping up and (laughs) anti-equities armies, right? It it just would not have been better. It would not have been Anti-bank, right? Anti-bank armies. And and the long-term would look a lot different now than it does today, probably for the worse. So we had those two big acts, right? The 33 and 34 act. There is that in, is it the Investment Advisors Act of 1940? 40. Mm-hmm. So there's that Investment Advisors Act of 1940. How does that factor into the securities market in particular? Did that have an outsized impact or is that more of a investment advisor? It's more adjacent to the history of securities regulation.
1: I I don't think it had an outsized impact initially. I think the the hedge fund space and the advisory space really grew significantly. You know, in the last 20 to 30 years, we had closing mutual funds, etc. But I mean, I will say this. I mean, there may be people out there who say, hold it, Eric, you're glossing over the investment advisors. But I, I, I'll simply say that it, it certainly there weren't there wasn't an awful lot of activity there. I think it established some rules of the road for financial advisors who engaging in the marketplace and representing customers. I'd say it was important in that a lot of people invested through investment advisors and thus having a framework to establish that confidence was important, right? Of course, they invested typically through their broker, not so much through a mutual fund. That sort of emerged later more so. So yeah, so that wasn't a big focus of my, my research only because I, I really wanted to focus on the markets themselves and, and the issuances the more so, and, and ultimately the trading in the secondary market more so than I wanted to focus on the, the advisory aspect, because that's, that's more tangential, at least from the perspective of digital assets.
0: And especially with your paper focused on the intermediaries, right? It's focused on what, how does DeFi operate and what's different and how is the current system that is intermediary focused evolved. And in 1963, you say there was a turning point in financial intermediary regulation. I was wondering if you could explain why that was the case and what happened at that time.
1: Yeah. So the there was the in 1963 there was a special study of securities markets which was commissioned by the U.S. Congress to examine and evaluate the function of the securities markets and industry practices. Now this was this was a 3,000 page report that they generated. I mean, man, can you just imagine 3,000? I, I certainly wouldn't want to be uh, proofing for commas on that one. But this comprehensive review it was significant for a few reasons, and and it marked. Really, it did mark a turning point. Because one, you know, and again, 1963, 1933, 1934, right? So you're talking about 30 years. And I mean, I'm not gonna say nothing happened, because there might be somebody who's probably not alive who could say, well, hold it. No, that's not entirely true. Stuff happened during that time. But but from a from a big picture perspective, it was a relatively quiet time. You know, re- regulation was enforced, et cetera, and, and it had its intended effect. But it wasn't like, you know, it, it, in 1963 is really where things started to change, right? So it, it tried to identify regulatory gaps, you know, where there was insufficient or outdated rules, especially in the context of technological advancements and innovations that had happened since the 1930s. Wow, that sounds like it makes sense to look at where the technology is and start to think about it, right? And this is really where my paper really picks up in in a more focused way, right? Another one was investor protection. Now, it really hadn't been investor protection, you know, was at the heart of it. But but this is where where in 1963, they start to really think about investor protection more. And it starts to highlight things like conflicts of interest, inadequate disclosures, misleading sales practices. And it led to new initiatives and regulations that were designed to protect the investors. I looked at broker-dealer practices front running and churning were very common in the space. And so they, it led to stricter rules governing it. Market structure, it thought about the fragmented structure of the U.S. Tra- of the US securities markets, off-board trading by NYSE members. And so it led to significant changes in that. It also looked, and this is critical, it was one of the first significant regulatory initiatives that occurred to, to, to that time to consider the impact of technology on the securities market. And it recommended modernizing it. And that ultimately led to NMS. Now we think about NMS years, years later, but NMS was the concept of a national market system. Actually was, well, it was, it, it, there was another report that was done by the embassy in, in 1975, but this is where they really set the stage for a national market system also talked about transparency for both trading and reporting of securities, leading to changes for real-time trade and quote reporting. It talked about self-regulatory organizations like the NYSE and made changes to strengthen those practices. So it really, I mean, if you really want to think about like you know, 1933, 1934 set the structure, but if you really want to think about the cornerstone for technology in the, in, in the securities markets- it's 1963, it's that report. That was the genesis block for so much of, of technology and, and, and its impact on regulation and, and, and vice versa. And it really represented this embrace of technology. Technology was not the enemy. Technology was a way to achieve greater transparency, to, 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 to really advance the US's interests in the world as a financial center. It was not an enemy it was it was a friend it was a force for change it was a force for good it was a force for investor protection
0: and when you when you are going through this and you think about the parallels to crypto today and how there are members of congress there are senators there are people in the world generally who do see this emerging technology particularly cryptocurrencies blockchains as a threat and as not A linear progression, but more so a completely new thing that doesn't need to exist, is a solution in search of a problem. Were there similar? I'm just curious if there were similarities in terms of how people viewed technology at the time. When you read through the study, are there things that we can take away from that that we could be implementing now to do a better job of bridging the gap between what technology is available and current
1: practices? So when you think about some of the changes, and the way that markets, the national market system was viewed at the time, again, it's all all rotating around this notion of automated quotations. And automated quotations, how you display it to the market, what can be seen, transparency. It really, like at that time, we're talking about quotations being disseminated, not even executions at that, at that stage, right? So like the national, so in 1975, NASDAQ was created. This was, you know, this was a big deal. The National Association of Securities Dealers Automated Quotation System. So all focused on the automation of quotations and the the dissemination of quotations, right? To ensure, so like a fragmented market meant that there were different pockets of exchanges and executions that occurred without even communications with one another. So your execution quality was really dependent on where it was. And there's something very, I mean, again, I'm not going to try to do a one-line history on this. Somebody told me you need to avoid one-line histories because it's really that simple. But, but, but the the notion of a fragmented market and the need to have some sort of more consolidation and transparency was something that could be easily understood, right? Whereas I think as we start to advance and particularly post two thousand eight, I think it's harder to explain. Like one of the things that you get in the in the digital asset market, if it was so easy to explain the value prop or even necessarily the evolution of it. I think it'd be harder. I think in 1963, they had a benefit of years and they saw the emergence of this technology and they had some experience in the fragmentation. So the fragmentation almost like posed an issue that was begging a solution. And technology was seen as like, oh God, here's this issue we've had. We have to solve this. Whereas, you know, I don't think digital asset necessarily came into an environment where people were saying this is an inherent problem that we've been carrying for years. Now we have to solve it. It brings a lot of improvements to clearance and settlement. It certainly democratizes access. I think very exciting for DeFi is it provides sort of a, a building block that can be democratized and we can build things on top of it. It's composability. But I think you start having that kind of conversation with your your average regulator or politicians are like, how do I explain that to my constituency? And I don't think there was also the same sort of lightning rod effect back then. I think in some ways, the news cycle enabled you to sort of Act a little more rationally, right? I mean, because because there was limited number of newspapers and people would read and like, oh, the stock market seems like a great place to be. It's like it was. I, again, I don't mean to overly simplify it because those in the in the key circles were obviously deep into the weeds. But but I think it was it, there wasn't as much politici- politicization of the markets back then. So again, I think it was a an inherent problem that was begging to be solved. And it just became so compellingly apparent in 1963 that we needed to do something. We needed to to jump on board and to to and, and to really grab hold of this technology. And that was a trend that kind of continued well into you know the, the the late 2000s. And obviously, 2008 had its own accelerating effect on a on a shift. But but yeah, for for a good god 40 40 plus years, it was you know technology was 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 definitely viewed differently. No,
0: it's it's so many so many great points you made there Eric especially when you think about the identify how easy it was to identify the problem of say paper settlement versus electronic settlement and okay that's a clear issue it's a lot less clear when you say we're going to go from digital set- settlement to digital settlement only this version is better And people, okay, why is it better? Well, because it uses a blockchain. Okay, well, what's a blockchain? And now you have to actually understand the technology compared to something like email where most people have no idea how email works on the backend and they don't need to. There's not a why is this better question because it's obviously better. You tried it, it works. It looks differently to the end user versus electronically. Okay, why would we change from something we know, we trust, we've used for 30 20 30 plus years depending on the particular particular application compared to something new and so i think that's a very very good point and I just want to go to jump to 1975 now, where the SEC was tasked with addressing information asymmetries. And in your paper, you note that it was also tasked with creating a national market system. So we have two really important keys here. And it's interesting to even think about the parallels between digital assets, where we don't really have anything in place across the US to address information asymmetries and create a national system for crypto that fits crypto that is being embraced. By the industry, what were the impacts of this nineteen seventy five tasking of the SEC, especially in the early stages, and how did that evolve?
1: Right. So, I, and I think you also raise a very good point about the paperwork because between the nineteen sixty three and, and nineteen seventy five, where the Congress, where Congress tasked you with crafting the sort of national market system. <clears throat> There was the paperwork crisis, where like the back office operations of BDs and exchanges just couldn't keep up with the volume of securities trades, and it became a real significant issue, and it, it created slowdowns and just a lot of different concerns. So, the you know the the 1963 report seemed even more prescient in in light of the you know, the surge in volume, uh, you know, post-war, you know, generally. And, and it just kept on growing into the late 60s. So in 1975, the Congress commissioned the SEC to to, to start to develop a market structure for uh, a national market. And, and sort of some critical Lego blocks to this was one, as we talked about, that exchanges and broker dealers should publish prices at which they'll execute trade. They wanted to hold these parties uh, to what they quoted now. So now we start to move into, okay, we've we've now automated quoting and we have all these prices, but now we're seeing a lot of dissimilarities in the prices at which they're executing. And again, this this sort of this whole notion of fragmentation, it takes a while to bring all this together. First, it's quoting, and it's execution. They also had this concept of disintermediation, which a lot of people will like. Investors' orders should be executable without mandatory dealer participation. Another one is markets should be linked electronically, so the best prices are accessible, and then best execution. Regulated brokers must obtain best execution for their their clients. And so these were sort of the the building blocks of the national market system designed to eliminate a lot of these frictions, designed to sort of have not only just consolidated quoting, but also some standards with regards to that. And so one of the things that was introduced, and I know you want to get into it, but which is really very relevant for digital assets, I almost feel like there's like a, what, it's a sister or a brother or a parent or something, is the small order execution system introduced in 1984. It was an automated trading system designed to execute small market orders. Typically, it was under a thousand shares, quickly and efficiently. And basically, you could access these quotes directly through a broker deal. It wasn't like your retail person could just access it directly, but the electronic connectivity would enable you to do it directly. And so but 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 its use started to grow well beyond what it was even designed or originally contemplated to do, and you had this concept of the S.O.S. bandits. So, you know, as S.O.S. became more popular and more utilized, again, small order execution system S.O.E.S. Right. So, as this became more popular, you know, what happened is you'd have market makers that would be posting their quotes you know that would would have to be electronic electronically accessible and the broker dealers would exploit price differences across different market makers and make quick profits so it was controversial but it it's really became a template for leveling the playing field between retail and institutional investors so market makers prior to that they they had time to, to adjust their quotes, right? There wasn't like, they, they didn't have to do it instantaneously, but SOS created this pressure even though it wasn't mandatory initially and then it was effectively as part of the order handling rules that, later, that were later adopted. It effectively kept them under constant pressure and a, a lot of so's was pushed back on by the institutions once they started getting their their clocks cleaned by some of these practices but you know in truth it 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 really shaped the market you know it it spurred interest in electronic systems significantly and and but in the, even doing so you know this this fragmented but yet inter, interconnected ecosystem you know it it forced market makers to upgrade their technology. So it really, when you think about it, now market makers had to become more efficient to because of the 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 SOs and the order handling rules. And in many ways, much of the regulation that then came with regards to ATS and even NMS was sort of a continuation of this story arc that began with 19. 1960. So in 1963 it starts off everything. You get into the creation of NASDAQ, you create, you come into SOs which accelerates all these all these factors and forces this this much more responsive system of maintaining quotes and executions. And, and in many ways, it also gave rise or gave birth to the concept of or the groundwork for high frequency trading because again, these these strategies were very similar conceptually at least to those used by so's bandits. So it democratized trading, but you know it 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 obviously upset the incumbents. And you know, it, it but but eventually you know, the, the, the advantages of SOS just baked itself into the entire market and the market continued to adapt to those changes and say, Okay, well, you know what, we're now going to try to find a way to connect things even better and improve execution quality and bring that the mani- bring the benefits of SOS almost on a mandatory basis through ATS, through NMS. Yeah. So so yeah. So SOS is, is truly, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for for SOS because in many ways, like even though some might malign the notion of, of So's bandits, it, it it they they performed sort of this critical evolutionary function with regards to the advancement of the US financial markets.
0: What lessons do you glean from the SOS phenomenon it, when you think about regulation adopted following SOS compared to where we're at now, where there is this high frequency trade? There, there's so much going on from an electronic perspective, but now we've added digital assets into the mix and we're seeing real world assets come on chain. What were some things you took away from how SOS evolved over time and the idea of SOS bandits and the fact that they were able to continue to exist despite industry pushback?
1: It was a powerful force and it it sort of injected this new force into the marketplace that directly challenged the incumbents and bad things would happen to some of the incumbents along the way with regards to fines and settlements with the SEC. And I think one of the things is a key takeaway. Is so's wasn't perfect. And honestly, you're not going to find a perfect market structure, right? Because incentives are important and incentives shape market structure. And sometimes those incentives can be abused, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the incentive itself is inherently bad. It just means that there could be there could be abuse. And either you fix it through better standards, through through norms, through existing market participants, through technologies, sometimes through regulation, right? If it's sufficiently fraudulent, right? But the it 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 was a once it was unleashed, you could not stop the force that SOS had on the entire marketplace. It drove the direction of the marketplace. And I feel like digital assets is that way i think once unleashed and i think some to some extent that's what regulators are trying to to manage but it has this this like it it has this huge sucking sound for efficiencies that it's just inevitable so yeah I, I, in that respect so's was a catalyst a and it 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 democratized access it provided greater transparency and information it uh, it, uh Reduced information asymmetries, and so it was incredibly valuable for democratizing the market for you know for innovation. Again, the impact of SOAS on the entire mm-hmm. U.S. equities market structure can't be can't be over overestimated. It, it it was quite significant.
0: Yet we seem to not hear much discussion. At least I don't. Maybe maybe you do around the parallels between SOS and the benefits that it brought to market and the benefits that digital assets can bring to market. Why do you think the SOS phenomenon goes under discussed today?
1: You know, the evolution of the paper really started from a desire to tell a history and to contrast our perception of history with with the realities that we see today. Like, There's so much information. You go on any forum or, or, or website, or even the regulators, you can get drowned in all the discussions about digital assets and every single permutation. And it's it's very easy to think of digital asset as sort of this thing that exists in sort of isolation, right? We know that there was a history that preceded it, but we just sort of accept it that the SEC's tactics or, or approach or, or the, the you know the regulatory perspective is we look at it through the lens of digital assets. And and one of the things I wanted to do with the paper was to try to shift the lens a little bit to say it may not be like we, this reality, this notion that, that the SEC is and always was and always did things the same way and we're consistent with our mission and why are you bucking the SEC, et cetera, all this stuff. And I don't know if anybody's framed it like why are you bucking the SEC but this whole notion that like you know this is the framework it's always been in place since howie and bah, 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 it's strict and we've always done it this way it's actually not true right it, it's a it's a it's a warped view like you're pointing to a single case and you're saying okay we've been consistent with it. but when you look you take a step back and you look at the overall trading markets you know which is you know, we're not really ultimately. There's primary issuances in the market, but let's face it. Like, what grows is is going to be this notion of a second of of, of a secondary marketplace in this stuff. That that's what's really going to you know change the dynamic globally. I think you have to have a secondary market in order. To, you have to have a robust secondary market in order to even like. What's the point of doing a primary? I mean, it's great you can do a primary, but then you rely on mergers and you know going public or something much more heavy and complicated. So secondary trading is really important. It's the lifeblood. And and this story is meant to say, you know, we can't just look at this, what's going on today in digital assets and say, this is an extension of what's always been. It's not an extension of what's always been. It's actually much more an extension of what's not always been.
0: So many interesting parallels. And I think it's easy to get caught up in the idea of an investment contract as well, right? You mentioned Howie, and there's so much more to the story and the way intermediaries are regulated and the number of intermediaries that we have that may be unnecessary going forward, given the new technologies that have emerged, and once people begin to see the benefits that come from a cost perspective, that's where I think the incumbents will be in trouble because you a lot of that money can be saved with more efficient systems.
1: Yeah, although I I don't know if it's even as simple as that, and I know I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but one of the things that you saw, like for example, with ATS, Witso's, etc., is. There's often a, a, how should I say, there are those that don't adapt and they tend to disappear over time. Then there are those that adapt and they can be very successful because they've got the existing piping, they've got the expertise, they've got the capital, they're well-established, they've got the reputation, presumably, and they can be successful. You can have an existing incumbent making more money than they ever did before because they were adaptable. It's the ones that don't want to adapt or can't adapt or see their incumbent model threatened because it's reliant on a prior system, those are the ones that are the loudest. And the louder that they are and the less that they adapt, they're basically signaling their own demise. Right. You know, if they're screaming at the top of their lungs, it's a very good chance that they're they're the worst position, right? Whereas incumbents can definitely adapt. And and then there's obviously new incumbents that come in and join them. You know one of the things I try to also kind of convey in the paper again, I know I'm skipping ahead a little bit is is we are going to have incumbents we are going to have institutionalization in the market if it's going to have any kind of penetration worldwide Full stop we have to it's just that's just where it's going to be. I would love to see a world where where we continue to keep the fires of decentralization alive in the protocol level in the different approaches in the green space that people have to work on and build things and 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 develop. but again I'm I'm skipping ahead. So we're sticking with history for a bit. So,
0: Well, yeah, let's jump to the impact of electronic trading. So in the 1990s and the early 2000s, we started to see that expansion of the use of electronic trading. And with the expansion of the use came the expansion of the rules for. Were there similar? When you think back, I'd love to hear your origin story into electronic trading and the early experiences that you had working in that industry.
1: Well, I started in the traditional finance space more so in the 1990s the, the, the comment i made about the buttonwood tree was a joke i actually wasn't there but the the i'm not that old so but I, I started as a general counsel for basically the dominant equities order management system known as OS OMSs on the street in in 1997 which is pretty much the exact time which is the time and no coincidence that SEC issued the concept release on Reg ATS in that for later, and I worked for them as outside counsel previously. But at the time, we combined with Goldman, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, and Knight Capital, which is no longer in place, to create this thing called Brute. Now, Brute stood for Brass, which was the, the OMS system I worked on. The the Brass utility routing technology. So here we're talking about routing, right? Moving from quotations, we're we're thinking about how do we get the best execution? And basically each of these players kicked in a million dollars into this this new company. And six to seven years later, Brute sold for 190 million to NASDAQ. Not Not a bad turn. It was fun to be a GC for both, but this concept of utility really Kind of stuck with me, you know. Creating something for the broader marketplace. From there, I moved on to Bloomberg. I worked on their order management system, execution management systems, alternative trading systems. You know, another technology focused matters before moving to Lehman. Until I worked until May of 2008. Note the the month May, not September 2008. And and then I took a role of general counsel and CRO for a digital exchange ATSs. Where I managed your exchange registration applications to to approval, and I stayed on for a couple of years after that before I started to try to create the next pink sheets or OTC marketplace as a founder, CEO, CCO. We needed a consortium, but I was I was playing off of the 2008 playbook where pre-2008 playbook were consortiums, and it was just a very different environment at the time. Post-2008, everything changed, and the risk aversion due to what was going on from a regulatory perspective changed. So I tried that for a couple of years. It was fun. It was interesting. But I, I moved on to private practice where I continued to represent exchanges and, and, fin, and fintech broker-dealers.
0: And when you think about the approach that was taken in the 1990s and the 2000s, right, there were fraudulent projects there were projects that went bust but there were also projects that changed the world and changed the way you and I live today the way we shop online the way we consume content and many other things as well where we can work you know you name it what parallels do you see with digital assets and how things evolved and where can people begin to either shift the narrative or shift the approach or shift what's been worked on? Like what learnings have you gleaned from that experience that you can apply to digital assets and you do
1: apply? Well, I'll tell a, a story that's that's kind of funny, but it illustrates a very key point. So there was a broad under, there wasn't really a broad understanding of what did of electronic trading was. You know, today you say, oh, I'm in electronic trading. And people are just like, as opposed to what? <laughs> like, what, right? Like, If you're still in business, you're you're obviously not doing (laughs) manual trading. Um, But like people who understood it day in day out, they got it. But even within Lehman, I got hired. I I was hired effectively as an electronic trading lawyer. But the first three interviews I had to conduct, I had people would say, "Oh, you know, you're like going to be like that dot com lawyer." Like I don't know why the hell dot com. I guess it was the Web two equivalent. But they kept on referring to me as a dot com lawyer. And, like, I th- I'm convinced that the only reason why, like, I don't know if it's the only reason why, but certainly one of the reasons why I got the job is because, like, I didn't play into it. I kept on saying, like, well, I don't know what a dot-com lawyer is, but let me tell you what I do. And then you can decide whether I'm the right person for this job. And I go to the next interview. It's like, so you're the dot-com lawyer. I don't know what that is. I don't know. I have no idea. But let me tell you what I do. And then finally I got to my boss. She's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're perfect. They know what they're talking about. I'm like, oh, okay, that's great. You know, and so it. It just shows how mystifying emerging technologies can be to the wider public. I mean, here I was interviewing for this role. You'd think the three, and I'm not going to pick on anybody, but you'd think the three people, I interviewed a whole bunch of people, but you'd think three of the people who I was interviewing early on would have some clue as to what it was that I was doing. Like they were servicing Lehman, they were in house. One was outside, one was in house, there was another route. And then finally, I started talking to business people where the conversation changed dramatically. But like, these are people like in HR or what have you, they just, they didn't understand it. And they were in the space. They were working for Lehman Brothers and they were so, like, and they were just, they were framing the wrong job. Like I did, I don't, dot .com, I don't know, like what what is a dot .com lawyer, right? So, you know, so, so that's one of the things I learned. And it's, it's, it's hard when there's not an understanding of what a technology is or what it purports to do. And it really relates directly to the politicization of digital asset regulation, but it's not just digital asset. Again, thinking about the trajectory and we're going to talk about this, you know, the, 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 it wasn't as if technology good and then digital assets. It was technology good. And then right around the time of 2008, and I'm not necessarily going to put it all on the 2008 crisis. I will say that the 2008 crisis changed things in a way that would not have changed, but for that, for sure this embrace of this concept of systemic rest risk then leading into this concept of top-down regulation always right like everything like again some people mm-hmm. say well we're not only top- down but certainly as it relates to digital assets top-down certainly the approaches that were initially tried with regard to automated trading or algorithmic trading post 2008 heavily top down but you know, Pre two thousand and eight, Lehman was a very exciting. It was most exciting time in my career. You could engage with Finra, you could engage with SEC on market structure issues relating to technology, and they would listen. We were focused on getting right. So I started like early on. I, there was something called sponsored access, where you would give buy side direct access to market trading environments, bypassing the broker, just routed through the broker dealer systems. And so with minimal checks or what have you. And I was, I was because I was a tech, because I was a dot-com lawyer, which I know I wasn't a dot-com lawyer, but because I was this lawyer, that these were the kinds of things I looked at. And so like, I remember calling Finra and I'm like, this guy this you guys just, and I was like looking for clarification. I'm like, and I was just like, you know, I could have done a better job with this. I just told them I said, listen, I could have done it. You, there are just so many things. Like, I, I don't know why I have to ask these questions. Like it should just be easier. And the woman on the other side, she said, she and she was, you know, I guess she was mid, but, but she said, well, then why don't you, why don't you take a crack at it? I said, oh, I said, okay. You oh, know, shit. I was like, wow. All right. So I went back and I took a crack at it and we went back and forth and then some of it got adopted into like the final rule. And, wow. and so, you know, and at that point I was just like, wow, like I can actually make a difference. And so right. what followed is like, I ended up working like extensively on, on the short sale regulation and all the locating and back office processes associated with it. I worked on NMS. I worked on, I ended up getting laid. I, I ended up moving from just stuff that were in rule proposal stage to actually saying, this doesn't make sense. Let's fix it. And then pressing that through. So it it sort of grew, right? So, but the short sale one also has another interesting story, you know, for, for, for the benefit of this podcast. So like, so I was so focused on tech and and this is, this is another key lesson. I think it's enjoyable because it's whatever, but I became so focused on technical, on technical infrastructure and getting it right. That I started like when, when reg show came out, I was, I was like, okay, like there were other things I wanted to fix at Lehman too, that I didn't understand, but I felt like I, this was like, I was going to get this right. So I did something that a no lawyer, or even a compliance person, I'd ever done it even before. I was insistent on meeting with developers on an ongoing basis, right? I was like, you know, I want to make sure you get it right. Cause typically there was somebody to kind of chaperone you into this, right? But I was, but what I failed to appreciate, and I think this is really, really important lesson for regulators, or policymakers, for young lawyers. What I failed to appreciate was that there's a trade-off. So Resources are limited. It's compliance can be expensive. And focusing heavily on compliance, I'm not gonna say is heavily, but focusing on compliance means trade-offs on other things. And the speed at which you have to focus on compliance can also mean the demise of your business if you've created all these processes that you have to work out over time. So when I was on this, what I didn't realize. Was that some of the developers were just like, if I came in there and I said something, they'd be like, the lawyer said this, we have to do this. Like, there was such a reverence for what the attorney was doing. But it was like, the other thing is, they never had a lawyer talking to them before. So, like, for a lot of them, they were terrified, right? Meanwhile, I was just like, oh, this is great. We're doing market structure, blah, 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 blah. The SEC came in and said to us, they said, nobody else on the street is getting this right. You're the only one getting it right. So, it's like, wow. Look at what Eric Hess did. Eric Hess is wonderful. He got it right. No, 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 no. That's not the lesson from the story. The lesson from the story is that was a failure on my part because like we were, okay, sure, great. We got, we were number one in the street. It ultimately had benefits, but that was more lucky than it was like skill. But what it meant was there were projects, business projects that couldn't be worked on because we were so, because we were getting this right. There were trade-offs that were made. And and some of those trade-offs, you know, could have had an impact on on other things. And in fact, one of the outgrowths of this, one of the lessons learned, one of the key lessons learned was to integrate that legal and compliance function in with technical prioritization, because we didn't have that whole thing of prioritization, but when I got involved, I was prioritized, right? And nobody was in there to say, whoa, hold it. There's this other thing, like, you know, we had MDs going into into meetings and like, no, I'm sorry, we can't work on this because we're working on this thing with Eric Hess. So, you know, so I think that's, that's, you know, so, you know, the lesson is like, you can't just simply say, we have to impose this top-down heavy infrastructure. Let's try to get it all right all at once. And the industry will adapt. That, that just, that's a fail on its face, right? That's not how you establish a collaborative working relationship. So like one of the things that like, again, the paper is focusing on, I'm not trying to in the paper, I'm not trying to say this is the way you have to do it. I don't say like, this is the way you have to do securities. You know, you have to designate the instrument. I'm not saying that this is like, you know, you have to regulate front ends or whatever, which I don't even think can consistently be applied in any sort of coherent fashion in a one-liner, much like same risk, same activity, same risk, same rules, same outcome. Right. It's, like, it's just like simplistic nursery rhymes, right? right. It, it, the point is, yeah. it's like, you have to figure out where to start. Yeah. and And even if you have regulation, you have any of this stuff, you got to learn. So either you're going to learn or you're going to work with the industry or you're just going to come in with a top-down approach and say do this and the industry is not going to succeed. So you have your choice. And yeah. so like not everything has to be resolved, but you do have to start to realize like if you let's try to figure out ways to work collaboratively to achieve certain core things and we can determine what those core things are within which we can operate for a period of time until everything else falls falls into place. That's a lesson. Like the lesson is a sort of top down all at once. Here it is. We figured it all out. It's all we've solved it. Here's a solution. Come on. That can't happen. First of all, it evolves. It doesn't really make sense. For the evolution of digital assets, if you come in with one singular top down and you try to fix it all, you know, it's funny, like even in short sales, like, so this is how it actually ended up becoming more beneficial. They came back in because they failed to understand the technology, the SEC that went into this. They came in with this thing called a long sale locate. Now, I don't even want to get into what well, the technicalities, because people will be hitting the stop on the play button at this point if I do that. But, but I will say that there was an, a, you know, in the, in the impact or the cost for doing so, because the SEC has to say, what's the cost of doing this? And they said it was about $10,000 per firm. And I was like, no, 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 you missed it. You can't, they're not apples and oranges. I mean, no, they are apples and oranges. So I'm sorry. <laughs> They're not, they're not all apples, right? And and so basically I went down to the SEC. And again, kudos to the SEC for being open to this kind of conversation. And I said, listen, let me explain to you. You say 10,000, this is more complicated than long, than short sales. And you think it's just an outgrowth, but it's completely different. And I said it could cost as much as a million dollars to get the technical infrastructure per firm to get this right. And literally by the time I had made it back from on my train to New York from DC, there were already efforts in place to pull that. And they pulled the rule filing. They never even had discussion on it. It just disappeared. And that was the right thing to do, but they hadn't really, and I was like, I came in loaded for bear. Cause I was like, let me explain why. And I said, listen, and then before I left again, before I left, I said, and I think this also this is also missing to some extent, I arranged a meeting with the FIX protocol and some other people who were very technically proficient to come in to sit with trading and markets and to explain in detail what had gone wrong that led up to this rule filing. Because to me, it was even more significant than just getting it wrong. It was significant in that there wasn't a process to really understand the technical underpinnings of what made this be. Now, I don't know if that was in place that's in place today, like who the heck knows. But at the time, for a period of time that followed it, they had technical review processes to fully understand the implications of like, and it particularly went into like Reg NMS, where they really made sure to understand what are the back office implications of mandating these changes? What's it gonna cost? What's it really gonna cost? Not just an estimate, not just an armchair review, not just based on our knowledge, but what's it really gonna cost us? Let's make sure that we have some rigor so that when we impose this on the whole industry, that they don't come back once they start trying to implement it, because sometimes these rule filings come out and people don't raise the right issues because you have lawyers who are looking at it. Maybe they're not sitting down with the developers; they're talking to people, but they haven't really gone into the real fundamental, some of the nitty-gritty stuff that that impacts it. Like I've had a few filings. The one that I pursued was a rule that had been adopted initially. Probably before things changed, the one that I pursued on my own right was called, it was a demanding Rule, the trading ahead of customer order rules. And there were two different infrastructures for doing it under NYC and nasdaq. and 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 as I started to investigate trying to to, to, to create this some of the some of the changes to some of these rules into our technical infrastructure at Lehman, I was just like, let me take a step back. Why do we have these two structures? Like they're so incompatible. Be- you are like, oh, well, we have to do that because the rules are different. So, again, I think having that in depth understanding is critical. And then on this last point, one other thing <laughs> this trading ahead rule, something known as the Manning rule and Rule 92. You know, I was a sort of like this this weird lawyer that would jump on the call and get spun up about technical issues and people be like, What? And then like six months later, they'd be like, What'd that guy say again? And then be like, Oh yeah, I guess that is an issue. On this one, when I explained it, most of the people were just dumbfounded, this particular issue. But then Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch called me up afterwards and said, Okay, no, we get it. And and you're right. And let's let's change this. And we did. And it 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 actually formed the basis for a lot of other synergies. But the, the point I want to make on this. Was you had two different regulatory frameworks that were operating to govern one system. Now it's easy to kind of say to analogize this to sort of a global framework where you have multiple regulatory systems applicable right. to 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 a single global asset. So one of the things, like for example, in IASCO, and I wrote about this. I touched on this in my paper, and I, I infused it into some of the in, in, my, in my my recent article, and I infused it into a, a common letter that I was working on, which is like there is a concept of mutual recognition, right? And that that concept exists to some extent and should exist more with regards to AML, sorry, money services businesses in the US where you have like 50 states. And it's like, okay, like, you know, you try to advise somebody to comply with 50 states. It's like, okay, you got to realize this is going to cost a lot of money. It's going to take a lot of time, right? And, and in some ways, it's kind of crazy, right? That there's 50 different things you have to think about. But there is some element of of, of recognition across the jurisdictions, particularly on certain requirements And the national, the NMLS, which is a, a national system for sort of harmonizing these applications, reduces some of these barriers that exist for money services businesses trying to get licensed across all states. But without mutual recognition, you can have very different regulations that exist in each jurisdiction. And so and and this was the this is sort of what I was facing with this fact that we had to have the same system operate in two different ways in a way that wasn't even synergistic. And I'm not even going to get into the complexities but there were a lot of downstream implications to this same for digital assets. It's a global asset, right? A lot of these digital assets are global. And whether you want to attack crypto or not, one of the issues that crypto is trying to re, re, uh, address is in a increasingly global world for capital flows. How do you kind of how do you create a framework that's not significantly inefficient? IOSCO sort of suggests that we go back to localizing all the regulation. You know, fit them into your existing regulation because that works. Well, okay, I, I'm going to take a little bit of an issue to that. The other thing that I found ironic, and I know I'm you know, like, Eric, we'll, we'll rope you back into the history in a second. But the other thing I found ironic about the IOSCO, in just for frame of reference, IOSCO published a consultation report on DeFi. IOSCO is the International Organization of Securities Commissioners. It is very influential worldwide. It has 95% of, I guess, free world <laughs> membership for the capital markets and, and the SEC is on it the CFTC's on it their principles initially influenced the establishment of CFTC's regulatory framework the the CFTC adopted those framework that framework whole cloth initially the, 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 it, it, their their core principles so they're they're you know they're an influential organization although they're staffed by the you know they're not like new blood they're existing blood so they say we should do this it's like well you're just Like if IASCO says something that agrees with the SEC, it's because the SEC is in IASCO. It's not like Gary Gensler will find a a lot of people supporting him from like the Gary Gensler Foundation. Well, you know, everything I said was supported by the Gary Gensler Foundation, so it must be accurate, right? Right. Um,
0: But even your point, just to jump in there, even your point about IASCO saying the regulation we have in place in different jurisdictions is sufficient, it's regulators from different jurisdictions saying what we have is sufficient and then pointing to that and saying, hey, IASCO said what we have.
1: Is right, me, myself, and I. I agreed with myself, right? And I'm I'm not I, I don't mean to simplify it because right. you know what it really is, it's almost like and it, it's it's like an, an effort across the membership to try to come up with some more common standards. But what was really interesting, and we'll get back to history, is is because it relates to mutual recognition and it relates to the the some of the things I learned during this time period of trying to harmonize regulation so they could operate across different markets, right? And so in IOSCO, one of the recommendations was about all these great ways that regulators need to share information and and work together, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Not a word about mutual recognition, not a word about it. So work together, you know, to help you work within your individual silos was sort of the the message. And I would argue that that is not appropriate, for what is effectively, particularly DeFi, which is really borderless technology, to say, okay, borderless technology, that's great. We can do borderless technology in all these little boxes. Well, no, it's... no, that's that's those are borders. They, that's not <laughs> anyway. So I know, I know, I I know I drifted a little bit, but but you know, these are like these learnings. This time period of of active engagement with the regulators, like. The, the changes that I made to the trading ahead rule benefited the market. I know it did. And it's not me. Okay. I'm I'm going to distance myself. I I like to say that like, if you come up with something really fantastic, eventually somebody's going to figure it out anyway. Maybe there's some exceptions, but as a lawyer, I really don't think that I'm like, like, oh my God, he came up with this new legal theory or whatever, a new way of doing things. Maybe, I don't know, but I am i don't want to take a bow. But my- It's pretty
0: impressive, Eric. I think you should take a bow because a lot yeah. of times in life, people identify problems and don't, go the extra mile to solve them. And, and clearly multiple times you do, you've done that. And it's one of those things where had you not done anything, no one knows what things would have been like, right? It's, not, it's a bit of a thankless task sometimes, but one that, that plays a big role. So well, well,
1: well, now that you inflated my ego, but no, I mean, honestly, <clears throat> the, the, the point really is, is that it was an environment that enabled me to do this, right? There was an openness to doing this. If I would have been dealing, you know, post 2008, there wasn't that openness, but previous to 2008, I was able, like, I really felt like with that sponsored access thing that I talked to you about, I felt so empowered, like, wow, I can actually have a positive impact. I can actually make the markets a better place. My input can be impactful. And, and that's, to me that's how you build a better market quicker and and when you start to 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 shift into this mode that we will like it's a systemic risk first mode right and and I'm not saying that people will say, well, hold it, we're not really saying that digital assets are a systemic risk today, but they could become a su- systemic risk. Like I love that line, drives me nuts. Like it could, like yeah, sure, we could we could grow grow antlers. I know maybe it's a little more realistic, but my point being is, it's like you know you don't want to necessarily have to deal with every potential eventuality. You really want to contemplate. Well, that means that today we have an opportunity to do something before it becomes a systemic risk, but without right. overreacting to this concept of systemic risk. So, but again, that time period was a time where people worked together to get things right. And there wasn't this heavy weight that, you know, innovation is put in the back seat. And now we have to focus on top-down and systemic risk in all these strictures that prevent us from even saying, well, hold it, that doesn't make sense.
0: Yeah, no, and, and thank you for those examples, Eric. Too, I think it is it's great to learn through story and and hearing the different stories and the conversations that are you're able to have. Hopefully, will inspire some people listening to put things on the path that you think they can go down. And knowing that it's happened before is a testament that it can happen again. And while it might be a more uphill battle post 2008, it is still possible. And 2008's a time that's come up quite often, not only in this podcast but in other podcasts. You had the dot. Frank Act being passed by Congress, the financial crisis, which came before that. We've seen subsequent technology-induced volatility events across the US, which you highlight in your paper as well, with algorithmic trading and and other things. Would love to hear your thoughts, Eric, on how things evolved post-2008. Because when you have new legislation, people are still toying with it. They're digesting it, trying to figure it out. And then only until 10, 12 years later, do you actually see the practical effects of what was tabled.
1: So, the 2008 crisis. Some people would like to blame it on the Commodity Futures Modernization Act that you know deregulated a lot of swaps, but it it really you know the story isn't one really just of deregulation. It 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 was you know a lot of things that preceded it. It it related to policy decisions around banks and their ability to set interest rates and you know cutting off some of their avenues for for making money you know, as well, and and the desire to press homeownership. I feel like the CFMA the, is often blamed as as sort of the cause. And certainly, you know, it had a lot to do with mortgage-backed securities, but to stop there really is a mistake. And there was the, was it the Financial Crisis Commission that published a report that really laid blame, just really widespread across the entire ecosystem. But having said that, you know, Gary Gensler, and again, I don't mean to, I don't want to Pin everything on Gary Gensler. I don't think I don't think it's 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 constructive to do so. And it it's just it's really a product of an environment rather than uh, Commissioner Gensler as a person. But he was basically assistant treasury secretary, secretary I think at the time, or and he was he had worked extensively on the CFMA. So when everything blew up, he was like the guy who who held the mantle of saying, "Well, I'll fix." what we did because nobody else understands it as well as I did. And I'm a Goldman guy and I understand things deeply and, you know, everybody embraced him and sort of, he became sort of this post 2008 figure. Right. And and whether or not you say it's all, I I don't say it's all commissioner or, or chair Gensler, but he, he, he is sort of emblematic of the, the new way of thinking about regulation and technology. So, you know, specifically after 2008, there was a big push to to deregulate. There was also the creation of the Financial Stability Oversight Commission, which was designed to pull in, you know, was designed to address financial stability concerns, but also to coordinate agency action across those. So it was the Department of Treasury, also chair the, the, SEC, well, the SEC, the CFTC, and a host of other agencies that were all involved. And their idea was to coordinate to sort of prevent, you know, something like 2008 happening again but also to really focus on financial stability and systemic risk. And one of the things they focused on early on was automated trading. And then they focused on digital assets. And the next thing they'll probably focus on is AI. So if you want to get a sense of, of what the emerging technologies are, you just simply look at the transcripts or the annual reports of, of FSOC, and there you have it. And and one of the things, and I, I don't want to say that, you know I think it would be silly to say that to say, well, we don't have a financial stability concern. As you know, even with global markets, things become more interconnected, things become more complicated. Certainly, we can understand how an issue here can cause an issue there. But one thing that I feel is is lost and, and started to be lost. The plot started to be lost post two thousand eight. Is nobody was really focusing on the innovation cycle. People were focused on how do we prevent the next implosion. And okay, that's great, but who's taking the side of innovation? Where is, you know, where are the proponents of innovation saying, hey, let's think about ways that we can, you know, use this technology to our, our benefit. And and again, even algorithmic trading or automated trading with some people would say, oh, you're fixing all these things or these people are trading against you and it's evil and this, that, the other thing. I take the other side to that because every market needs incentives. And algorithmic trading provided a lot of liquidity to the market. A lot of the benefits of execution that you get is because of algorithmic trading. And and those technologies are being dispersed as well. So people can use them even in just in, you know, by going through their brokers. So there's ways that you can benefit. Again, hard to say that any one single thing is not subject to abuse, whether it's digital assets, whether it's AI. But I mean, come on, it, it, it's, it's not like we didn't have Bernie Madoff or a bazillion other frauds, even in traditional financial markets. It's not like an immunity to say, oh, well, digital assets is bad. It just means to say that you do need to address these risks, but you also have to kind of modify them for the, you know, for the technology and their promise, which is again going back to the nineteen sixty-three, you know, the report, it focused on like, hey, this is what technology can do. This is how it can actually benefit us. How do we maximize it? How do we encourage the marketplace to develop along these lines in a way that benefit everybody? We've lost that since two thousand eight.
0: Yeah, it would be great if we had a similar study be done today, right? If there was push behind something like that, an initiative to say, okay, look, you know, we don't have all the answers. We don't have a top-down approach that will work perfectly. Let's commission a group of really smart people to investigate and figure out and talk to people. And I, I hope we do see something like that happen again with a study and a review of where the opportunities are. And your paper in particular, does a great job focusing on DeFi. And I think we'll do a part two of this podcast. And in part two, it'll be much more focused on DeFi and what you learned, what your paper talks about, and how we can begin to see regulation move forward in a way aligned with some of the principles you mentioned with maybe not in disparate locations with different jurisdictions, but an identifiable rule that applies cross borders sometimes. And and I think I'll leave that up to you in in part two to describe, but I thought the paper did an excellent job of that. So really looking forward to part two of that, Eric, and thank you for joining me and sharing the history of securities regulation.
1: Excellent. Well, uh, happy to, uh, to be here and I'm looking forward to doing part two as well.